Our scripture reader this morning is uh, infirmed, sick, and so uh, why don't we uh, turn to Second Kings, and uh, we'll 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 read it without her. It'll be fine. Second Kings, starting in thirty six, and going to uh, so sorry, Second Kings twenty three, starting in thirty six, and going to verse four of the next chapter. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebidah, the daughter of Padiah of Ramah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Hey, that needs to be prayed over. Would you pray over that with me? Heavenly Father, um, what a a deep and disturbing text. What a a place to start uh, Sunday morning, thinking about um, really as, as bad as things could get. Lord, would you give us wisdom from this ancient text? Lord, it's, it, it explains an ancient situation, but man, it feels like it could be about us. <laughs> and so, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and humility as we approach this. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would first and foremost be pleasing to you. And, and, and Lord, that this would be a morning where humility um, leads us to wisdom. And God, I pray that, uh, that your word would edify your church today. God, would you, um, would you we don't want to just hear from the scripture, Lord. We certainly don't want to just hear from me. Heavenly Father, we want we to hear from you. And so, Lord, would you speak to your people um, as we, you know, get into Daniel. I love you, Lord. Thank you for um, this sweet church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to start Daniel today, and I'm looking forward to it, man. Daniel is one of my favorite books, and um, um, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a lot going on in Daniel. And, and so before we dive into Daniel 1.1, we're going to have to kind of ask some stories or ask some questions about how we get to Daniel 1.1, kind of drops you in the middle of a pretty big story. And I wonder if we would just think, you know, just as I say the word Daniel, what stories come to your mind? Like, um, you know... I mean, the Veggie Tales made multiple episodes out of the book of Daniel. You've got the uh, Daniel in the lion's den, starting to remember some things. You've got the, the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. What are four people doing down there? Why aren't they being burned up? You've got Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. There's a lot of like dreams in here. Remember, Daniel is this like mystical dream interpreter guy. You remember all those stories. These are great like Sunday school stories. But I wonder, because we 
first engaged with these stories, if you grew up in church, you first engaged with these stories when you're pretty young. I wonder if you can think, what was the first thing that these stories meant to you as you heard about Daniel in the lion's den? Let's talk about um, Maybe you were told as a child, see, if you're a faithful person to God, he can rescue you from the mouths of lions. If you are faithful to God, he can save you from the fiery furnace. We need to be people like Daniel, like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Does that preach? Is that, is that true? Sure, that is still true. But Daniel paints on a much bigger canvas. This is a story about individual lives. In fact, not very many individual lives. There's not a lot of characters in the book of Daniel, at least in the first half of the book of Daniel. So it is a story about these exiles in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and, and eventually under Darius the Mede and all this stuff. But, but it's also like ancient history. This is stuff where we're not just learning about these group of dudes. We're actually learning about a very important and dark time in the nation of Israel. This is really important historical. We need to broaden from just a small group of people to, oh my gosh, this is actually about, about Israel. But more than that, this is as big a canvas as a prophet ever painted on. This is a story not just about what's going on inside that lion's den or inside that fiery furnace, not just about what's going on in the ancient Near East. Rather, this is a story that can be summed up like this. Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God endures forever. There will be kings who look really powerful and look like they're controlling everything, but their time will come. Look, it's the way of all men. Like we only go one direction and that is into the grave, every single one of us. And yet there is an eternal king that is greater still by measure after measure. So we need to, as we jump into Daniel, we need to kind of step back from the flannel graph, which the flannel graph is a wonderful place to start. It's where I first learned these stories, and it's great. I hope we're telling these stories to kids still, and I hope we're still telling them, hey, the God you serve can shut the mouths of lions. I'll get there uh, in a few weeks, and if I don't say that, don't leave here until I do. That is always going to be true. But there's a much grander story here that involves the entire history of the world. Not only, not only philosophically or metaphorically, but Egypt is involved in this story, and Assyria is involved in this story, and Babylon is in, uh, involved in this story, and the, the, uh, P, the, the Persians and the Medes are, are involved in the story of Daniel, and Greece is involved in the story of Daniel, and Rome is involved in the story of Daniel, and if Rome is involved, and all of Western civilization is involved, this is a big canvas. It is not just God is bigger than Nebuchadnezzar, but rather it is that this is an eternal truth that kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is established forever. So, when we pick up the story of Daniel, it is an incredibly low time for the nation of Israel. It is a time of exile. And I know that some of this is stuff that you know, but we need to discuss a little bit what exile meant. It wasn't just we lost a war and now we're prisoners of war somewhere else, although that is part of it. But the concept of exile is really one of the big themes 
Come take Boy's Bible at Trinity. We'll spend three weeks on the themes of the Old Testament. And exile and return is one of the major themes of the Old Testament. In fact, I would say the two major themes of the Old Testament are exile and return, this idea of covenants. And those are completely tied together and all fine in the boxing ring as we open up the pages of Daniel. So remember what exile was. Exile, you'll remember, was the, the symbol or what happened when these covenants of God were broken by the people. You'll remember that the relationship between God and humanity has always revolved around covenants, around relationship, around promises, um, promises made, promises kept, promises made, promises not kept. There's always been, it's never been mechanical. It's always been relational and, and uh, in, in every different epoch and era. Adam and Eve, um, just stay away from that tree and everything's going to be good. Well, we didn't stay away from the tree. Now we have exile. And um, okay, uh, Noah, um, you're, the, you're the guy now. Like, I'm going to start this all over with you. Walk before me and don't worship other gods. That lasted about 15 minutes or so. And then we're back into the burden of exile. Sometimes the theme of exile is invaders coming in. Sometimes the theme of exile in, involves people going out. You remember that one of the, the, the biggest exiles in uh, the story of the Old Testament is to Egypt. Well, they went down there voluntarily. Nobody got captured. Rather, it was God saved the people in Israel uh, and got them down to Egypt where they'd be safe, but they got comfortable. A king rose that did not know Joseph, and then they ended up in captivity and needed to be rescued. So this idea of exile and return is all over the pages of Scripture, and it is all about the covenants of God because um, it is the nature of covenants to be conditional. Now, that ruffles some feathers when you just say it out loud like that. That the, that the covenantal relationship between God and his people is always conditional. Now, hear me and hear me very clearly. God's love is unconditional. I double dare you to try to stop God from loving you. It's not going to happen. God's character is unchanging. God's love is unconditional. God's character is unchanging. God is not a moody, um, you know, a jilted lover who says, no, I just can't take it anymore. That's not what we mean by, by the conditions of the covenant. God's choice of Israel as his possession, as the tool by which the Messiah will show up is unconditional. God never unchooses Israel. And yet, the blessings, the benefits, the good times associated with these covenantal relationships are absolutely conditional. This shouldn't be very hard for us to, to fathom. A parent's love is unconditional. If you're a halfway decent parent, your love for your children is unconditional, but there certainly are rewards when their room gets cleaned without asking. And there certainly are punishments if those dishes are still sitting there on day three. That is not an unloving parent. That is rather the, the nature of a relationship between a loving sovereign and the vassal state. <laughs> that is your kid's bedroom. So if we could imagine a perfect king in a perfect kingdom, 
And the perfect king saying, look, I will provide everything you'll need. You'll always be safe. You'll never have to, you'll never have to even defend yourself. I'll do that. You're going to farm because you were made to work, but I'll make sure the rains come, and then I'll take care of you. That's just the way it's going to be. Oh, but I need you to stay. Maybe not but, maybe and. And I need you to stay inside the confines of the kingdom. I need you to not go worship and serve the king in the kingdom next door. I have nothing but love for you. I have nothing but power, the ability to take care of you. It's not hard for me. I delight in doing it. All you need to do is stay home. All you need to do is not go pick another king. So that would be a king who is powerful, a king who is all loving, and yet to receive the benefits of living faithfully under his kingdom, under his leadership, you would have to, the condition would be that you don't go serve another king. Now, I don't, I don't find that particularly difficult to fathom. That sounds like love to me. Here's what these conditions sounded like, and there's, uh, we, could, we could turn a hundred places, but, but if we'll just, it's a little bit of a sword drill today, just, it's good. You haven't turned to Deuteronomy in a long time. Go ahead and find it again. Um, Deuteronomy 11, um, if you're, if you're following, uh, following along at home. And like I said, there's a million places we could turn in, uh, especially in the, the Pentateuch and the first five books, but, but this is pretty clear. Deuteronomy 11 and 13, God is giving the people the law. This, the Deuteronomy is the second word. This is being reiterated. You're about to go into Canaan. I want you to remember all this stuff. And if, so verse 13 says, and if you will indeed obey my commandment. So do you see that word? Two letters, I-F, if, if. You will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him. And you think, oh, we have to obey the commandments of God? You do. And I want you just to review the Ten Commandments in your brain right now and go, which one of those is unfair? Which one of those do you go, man, no adultery? This place is lousy. I don't want to serve a king like that. I can't steal things. What do you mean? Now, now this makes good sense. If... You will obey. Verse 14, he will give rain uh, for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock. You shall eat of it and be full. We could go on and on and on. This sounds like a really good life. Hop over to verse 26. See, I am setting for you today a blessing and a curse. That kind of language feels familiar to you. It's several places in the scripture. Setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey. So setting before you a choice. There's an if statement here. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse. It is not follow God or else. It is you have a real choice. If you want to choose the curse, knock yourself out. It's here for you. You want to choose to not follow God and, and have everything that, that comes with it? Well, that choice is set before you, just like the choice to obey him and live in a safe relationship with him. The curse, if you do not obey the commandments of your Lord, the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. That is the choice. If you just will worship me, not worship these other gods, I will take care of you. 
So as the book of Daniel opens, we don't just see Israel in a rough spot. And I think this is important. And I think this is important in part because it's really easy for us to see the word nation and go, that's America. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We don't look at it and go, this is how we should be as a country. Rather, we look at it and go, this is referring to the people of God. Church, we are the people of God. In the book of Daniel, I will have a chance to say this 5,000 times. The problem is never unfaithfulness to God outside the church. The problem is always unfaithfulness to God inside the church. It's the people of God that these warnings and blessings and curses are written to. So, When we start the book of Daniel, what we see is a relationship with God that is completely broken. Do you remember? Let's just think about the covenant with Abraham. Do you remember the three things? On Wednesday night in the fall, we talked about this a lot, that the the blessings, the benefits to Abraham were going to be descendants, big family, lots of descendants. He was going to make him a great nation. There was going to be the land. Um, hey, Canaan is going to be this great and wonderful place and you're going to live there and then I'll bless you and you bless other people. This is, the, this, is, this is what's set before him. And we see none of that. As the book of Daniel opens, we don't just see that Israel has lost some wars. It has not been a lack of military might. It has not been a lack of economic Um, prowess. It has not been somebody started the wrong economic system and now they're here. No, rather, there's something else going on that has led to complete and broken relationship with God. So there are some questions at the heart of the book of Daniel. The one we'll talk about today is, how did we get here? I wonder if you've had times like that in your life or If you've ever read a church history book, you kind of look and go, where was God and all this? This is a mess. How did we get here? As we are sitting here in Babylon, away from the good land of Canaan, with no nation at all, how did we get here? What happened? Well, that's that's an autopsy worth doing. And we'll think about it a little bit today. And Daniel will also ask some questions like, um, is Yahweh still the Most High here? You'll always remember that when wars happened in the ancient world, it was sort of about military, but it was always about our God's bigger than your God, right? It was, uh, it was, it was always like Yahweh's fighting Baal or, or Marduk or whoever it is. It was always like our God is going to defeat your God and he's going to prove it on the battlefield. And so you kind of look and go, wow, our God's land is way over there by the Mediterranean. We are way over here in Iraq. Like how did... We're here in Babylon, or the land of Yahweh is far away. Is God, is Yahweh still the most high here? This is something that exiles need to know. And another question that we'll have to wrestle with as we go through Daniel is, is there hope that the covenant promises of God are still good? Is there hope despite this mess? When there doesn't seem to be the evidence of the blessings of God in my life. Like if you cannot say that your life is hashtag blessed right now, does that mean that the promises of God have failed? I'll even say it more than that. I'll say not just the promises of God, but is there hope? Can we trust in God himself 
Not just in what he says. I'm all for like memorize the promises of God and cling to him and all that stuff. But we're not just trusting his promises. We're trusting him. Even in the mess of exile, can I trust God? These are big questions, and I think they're questions that still need to be answered. I don't know about you, but there are frequent times I see failures of the church. I see clergy getting arrested for terrible things. I see, I see a, an ineffective church where the, the true gospel is just hard to even find in the culture. And I see, I see you know, numbers that are like, well, church attendance just continues to do this. And you go, how did we get here? We should ask that question. Was it a bad strategy? Do you think God needs us to have the perfect evangelical strategy? Is that what it is? How do we get here? How do things get this way? Even in the middle of a culture like ours, in lots of ways, our culture looks more like Babylon than it did like faithful Israel. That's okay. Don't get stressed out. God wins, we promise. But in the middle of a culture like ours, can God even work here? Has God lost? Is God not powerful? We need answers to these questions, and Daniel's very helpful. Because in some ways, we all live as exiles. Not in every way. It's not a one-for-one equation. It's different this side of the new covenant. We just celebrated the fact that those old covenants have gone away and, or been built on. And, and we, the new covenant established in Jesus' blood and his body, this is the covenant we are under now. And our citizenship as members of the kingdom of God, as the family of God, are sure. We're not, we're not being exiled outside of the church. However, the culture we wake up in every day is totally at odds with that good kingdom of light and life and rest and love and we have to know like what do we do if the culture all around us doesn't seem like the culture that my heart's craving in the kingdom of God do we fight do we pick up arms do we um do we like hop on your favorite social media platform and like put the whole world on blast like do we argue a lot do are we angry like what do we do and it's always going to start with, can I trust God even here? Is God still the Most High? Is He the King of kings and Lord of the lords in seaside right now? Then we can learn to act like it once we know it. So let's, um, let's take some time today and answer this question. And, and it, it will be um, a little bit of a, we'll, we'll be hopping all over. As the exiles, Daniel being one of them, as the book opens, the first big question that Daniel addresses is, how did we get here? How did we end up in exile? I mean, why are there even stories about God's people in Babylon for crying out loud? What are they doing about? They shouldn't have had, well, I'd like, if you read the Psalms, if you read like all of the, the early histories in, in, in 1st, 2nd Samuel, you read all the stories of Solomon and David and going backwards of, of the Exodus, it's like, I thought we were establishing a permanent kingdom. I thought this was going to be forever. thought this was eternal. How on earth could we be all the way in Babylon? 
There's really just one line in Daniel that addresses that question. It's Daniel 1, 1 and 2. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, okay, we heard Jehoiakim before, a lot about Jehoiakim today. Um, I'm, I'm praying that, you know, you guys um, never name your baby Jehoiakim. That would be a bad idea after this story. He's not a good dude. Um, Jehoiakim Combs would be pretty good, though. <laughs> I always like that. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There was a siege. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Oh, geez. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Do you see how this looked like Nebuchadnezzar's gods are beating Yahweh all over the place? In the cosmic game of capture the flag, Nebuchadnezzar has brought stuff from the temple and taken it to his God's temple and put it there. Obviously, we are winning in Babylon. I mean, you read those two lines and and you go, okay, here's what we can know about the, the question, how do we get here? First, we're here because Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem and brought us here. So there was, there was a physical thing. Nebuchadnezzar came and won a battle. In fact, a three-year siege. Also, we're here because the Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord, like God, the, the God of Israel, the one who loves Israel. You'll be mine and I'll be yours. You'll walk before me and I'll be in your midst. That God gave Jehoiakim and all of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Well, that almost causes as many questions as it answers. How could that happen? So why would God go and do that? Was it military mistakes? Was it just, ah, you guys just didn't fight a good enough war? It wasn't. Was it economic failure? Nope. Rather, it was something entirely different that we're going to have to turn to some of the Old Testament, other Old Testament narratives to figure out. If you still have a finger back in 2 Kings, why don't you turn back there? 2 Kings chapters 23 and 24. Um, I'll, I'll, we'll read some of it, but it's a lot of information, so I'll just tell you the story. Chapter 23 tells the story of King Josiah. If you remember Josiah, he was eight years old when he um, took the throne. So he was a child king. And something remarkable happened during Josiah's reign. While Josiah was king, he noticed that the temple was ramshackle. The temple had not had a remodel in a long time and, and was, was falling apart and had been put to disuse. And it was in disrepair. And so young Josiah had a heart to repair it. Hey, if you are under, there's, I know there's not a lot of you in the room. Maybe it's just right here. Uh, when people who are young have a heart for the Lord, really amazing things happen. When people who are young have a heart for the Lord, that's when really amazing things happen. Um, the best us old guys can do is train people who are young and have a heart for the Lord. So, um, so Josiah is young and he has a heart for the Lord and he sees the temple in disrepair and he has a heart to replace it or to repair it. And, and this, was, this was a big deal um, because this was a way to honor Yahweh and all of his predecessors, most of his predecessors had not. Rather, the temple kind of stood, it was physically in, in disrepair, but it really kind of stood as an image of the whole idea of worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh it had just fallen out of style. They just weren't doing it. Um, they were worshiping the gods of, that were of the nations all around them. 
So Josiah put a man named Saphan in charge of organizing the restoration, restoration project. Saphan is, the, is the, the foreman. He's the contractor. He's the guy who's supposed to go in there and, and, and pay workers to, um, to get this place back going. And while he's searching, while he's doing the, in, during the demo phase, he finds the book of the law. The law, like with the Ten Commandments, like the, maybe the whole first five books, maybe Leviticus. I don't know exactly what he found. He found the book of the law, like beginning with Moses, with this is how you're supposed to make a civilization work. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And, and so Shaphan takes this to Josiah, reads it to him. Guys, the most important thing we'll ever do is just read the Bible. Like, if you have a devotional that you really like, but it doesn't have enough scripture in it, just read the Bible. <laughs> like, if we, you ever come here and we are basing a sermon on anything but this, just go somewhere else, because I'm off the rails. Tell the shepherds on your way out so they can hem me back in. Um, but it's the Word of God that changes things. That's what happens. Josiah, here's the scriptures read. And... It's hard to believe that the people of God had been so led to worship other gods that they didn't even know God's law. It wasn't even being read in their presence, but that's what's going on. So Josiah, it breaks his heart. He tears his clothes and he sets out to not only restore the temple, but to reform the nation. And he does many wonderful things. He got rid of all the vessels. So this is before Jehoiakim. This is, if you could put this like a generation before Jehoiakim. He got rid of all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah. That would be like, I mean, it would, this is not the temple. We are the temple, but it would, the closest thing we would have is if, you know, you walked in here and they were doing, and, and there, the, the altar was set up for pagan you know, Wiccan sacrifices or something. It would be like that, right? So he got rid of all that, which is a very good idea. Um, he burned all that stuff out in the field. Um, he read the law to the people. It was the law of God that had broken his heart. And so he, as the king, reads the law to his people, which is a wonderful thing. Um, they, they tore down false altars. They dealt with false priests. They reinstated the celebration of Passover. It had been years and years and years and years and years since anybody had celebrated the Passover meal. So they started that. This was a far-reaching, incredibly intricate undertaking. Josiah did all he could to undo hundreds of years of idolatry. However, if you're looking, look in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 23. It says, Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, as the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Jeez, what did Manasseh do? Something terrible. This is where God gets like accused in our culture of like, oh, they worshiped other gods, so then Yahweh's mad. No. Yes. But no. Read with me the sin of Manasseh and tell me how it strikes you. Turn your Bibles one or two pages over to first, or Second Kings uh, chapter 21. 
So Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. So we have another child. This is before Josiah, and he's another child king. And he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. There's a good one. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations the, uh, the Lord drove out before the people. So we've talked about this before. We're talking about child sacrifice. We're talking about temple prostitution. When, when, we're, when it says despicable practices, these are not JV despicable practices. This is as ugly as pagan worship can get. Verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah um, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. So he worshipped like the, all of the, the gods that had been sent to rule the, the other nations of the world and, and, um, and had done so in rebellion to God. Verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord. In the house of the Lord, in the temple, he built altars for all those hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Look, if you're already not feeling good, don't read verse 6. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. So it's not just that God got his feelings hurt. It's that worship of anything that is not God ultimately leads to violence, And the people who are always the victim of that violence are the most vulnerable among us. It's always children. It's always the young and the old. It's always the depressed economic parts of town that worship of idols destroys. So it's not that God got stood up for the prom and is mad about it. Rather, God sees these despicable, violent terrible practices that Israel is supposed to be the light to shine in that darkness and instead the darkness has crept into the very temple of God. So 23, chapter 23 continues and Josiah dies in battle and Josiah's son replaces him on the throne But his son only reigns for three months. But in that three months, he was pretty active. We see he did a few things. First of all, he again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like his forefathers. So not like his father, Josiah, but rather like Manasseh and the kings before him. And also we're told he became a vassal state to King Necho, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. So Necho puts Josiah's son in bonds and installs a puppet king in Jerusalem. So it's not enough for the king of Egypt to have Josiah's son as a puppet king in Jerusalem. No, he takes him away and imprisons him, and he sets up our man Jehoiakim, the guy we met in Daniel, to be this puppet king in Jerusalem. How's the covenant doing? Whose fault? Did God... Did God's love fail? No. If you'll obey, I'll send the rain. You won't have to fight wars and things will be good. But if you choose the curse, I'll give it to you. So when we meet Jehoiakim and Daniel, he's not much more than a lackey that works for Egypt. Um, I think I have King Jehoiakim in air quotes. That's, That's right. 
I mean, he called himself king, but he only did what the Egyptian pharaoh told him to do. In fact, verse tw- or chapter 23 will go on to say that he taxed the people heavily, because you know who always pays is the poor. It's always the vulnerable. It's always the poor. That's what always happens when we worship things that are not God. You know, when we look at our culture and we go, oh, it's that political party, it's that, it's this ideology, it's that, that's what's killing the poor. Nah, it's worship, it's idolatrous worship. It's always violence against the vulnerable. That's what happens. So the people get taxed, silver and gold from the temple go to Egypt. Maybe some of the gold that God had provided that came out from Egypt. And continued, he continued in the idolatry of the previous kings. So 2 Kings again starts. In his day, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. So he goes from being a lackey for the king of Egypt to being a lackey for the king of Babylon. And the Lord sinned against him. So now, we read this earlier, God's going to send Chaldeans and Syrians. Chaldeans are Babylonians. They're from the southern part of the Babylonian Empire. And Syrians and Moabites and Ammonites. And God's just sending waves and waves and waves. And you go, why does God hate these people? God doesn't hate these people. God needs to get these people's attention. If you will turn, then I will restore you. So Babylon arises as this greater power than Egypt, and Israel gets caught in the middle. Jehoiakim goes from working for Egypt to working for Babylon. But at some point, we're told that Jehoiakim decides to fight back. He tried to resist, it says. And then we are told that the exile happens. But we're not told that Nebuchadnezzar overwhelmed. It's not like Jehoiakim tried to fight a war against Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar's army was just too big. Rather, what we're told is that God sent waves of armies against Jerusalem. Why? Verse 3 makes it pretty clear. 24, 2 Kings 24, verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of Yahweh to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh. By this time, the sins of Manasseh had just come to be colloquial for child sacrifice and death of the innocent. It's not just that God was disgusted at what was going on in Israel. You would be too. So how do we get to Babylon? What's the road to exile look like? Well, it was idolatry. It was violence against the innocent. It wasn't economic. It wasn't political. But rather, it was greed. It was power. It was violence. It was immorality. It was not protecting kids. Prophet Jeremiah, if you've got a little more Bible turning in you, um, the prophet Jeremiah gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the heart of Jehoiakim. If you'll turn with me to Jeremiah 36, or or I'll just turn there and read it. Um, And again, I'll just take just excerpts. But Jehoiakim is on the throne. Jeremiah is a contemporary of all of this mess. And then it says, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, so just as, you know, just as, as Nebuchadnezzar's threatening, um, the, the king of Judah, this word came from Jeremiah, 
uh, to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the day of Josiah to now, till now. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that every one of them may turn from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. How did God feel about the nation at this point? It was parental love. Jeremiah, go in there and tell them. And maybe if they turn, I'll forgive them. One of the things we're supposed to understand in the exile exile stories is the incredible length of God's patience, of God's God's has said everlasting mercy, love. God is patient, but he won't watch us destroy ourselves forever. So Jeremiah, it's a great story. I'll look forward to preaching through Jeremiah sometime, but I mean, that'll be a, that'll be a slog. I'm not going to lie. Well, that'll be hard. We'll do that in just four weeks because it's pretty sad the whole time. Um, but, um, uh, but Jeremiah isn't allowed to go in the temple court. He got, he's, he's, he's on restriction. So, because uh, Jehoiakim never likes what he says when he goes in there. So, so he gets a friend and says, hey, would you go in there and read this scroll to him? Down in verse 22, we see what happened. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. Um, and as uh, Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the pot. Why did the exile happen? It wasn't just of the incredible evil in the middle of God's people in Jerusalem. It was because even as God confronts them, lovingly sends somebody to say, hey, will you repent? Instead of repentance, there's pride. There's anger. There's a lack of repentance. If there's something in your life that you're like, I know God wants to deal with me, but I'm just proud and I won't repent, just knock it off and repent. It's better. There's a choice set before you. What do you want? The people are exiled because of idolatry. The people are exiled because of violence, especially against the young, against the vulnerable. The people are exiled because they rejected the offer of God to repent. If you are new to the faith, would I commend to you the image of Jesus on the cross with his arms stretched out and bleeding, welcoming you to the foot of the cross and the words coming out of his mouth, Father, forgive them. That forgiveness is for you if you will repent and come to the cross. Idolatry, greed, immorality, violence, self. Guys, we are the people of God. These things have to be far away from us. You go, I know, that's why that politician's dumb and that one's good. No, 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 no. They have to be far away from us. We are the salt. We are the light. It is Jesus reflecting his goodness, his forgiveness through us. That's the hope of the world. Give up on every other hope. It's idolatry. And instead, be the salt and the light. Forgive people and be forgiven. And let greed be far away. And let there be no violence in your life and protect the young. 
Good idea. If we want to experience a right relationship with God, the blessings of God, that the goodness, the sweetness, that peace that surpasses understanding, man, we need to heed this same warning. A contemporary, one more, one more time to turn in your scriptures, a contemporary to Jeremiah was a prophet named Habakkuk. And Habakkuk gives us another inside look at this time in history. And if you'll Turn over, Habakkuk is on page 966 in my Bible. I don't know if that's helpful to you at all. Um, um, but Habakkuk is a faithful person. Not everybody in Israel, in the middle of their idolatry, was unfaithful to God, but rather there were people who the culture was so pagan, was so evil, they saw the violence, they saw the, the, the despair, and they were brokenhearted about it. And guys, let me tell you, there can be brokenhearted Christians in the middle of an evil culture. It shouldn't be angry ones. Because vengeance is God's. And we don't fight like the rest of the world, but we fight with prayer and forgiveness. So Habakkuk is, if you, if, you, if you need words of lament, there are psalms that are great, but if you want to be someplace besides the psalms and you need words of lament, Habakkuk's your guy. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? He's looking around at this culture. He's a contemporary of all the stuff we've been talking about. And he's going, God, just fix it. Why won't you fix it? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Man, with some of that sin of Manasseh stuff, you understand what he was looking at. It's not just sin and violence like, hey, people are getting in fistfights. Babies are dying like little kids are being sacrificed. The blood is filling up in the streets. The law is paralyzed. And oh, the law is paralyzed. I wonder if he was part of, that, part of that first generation that heard the law for the first time in a long time. And he's like, we just heard it, guys. We just heard how to live a good life. Why aren't we doing it? Down to verse 5. Look among the nations. This is God's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if I told you. That's always true. That God is doing something we can't see. But we have to, we started with this question. Can we trust God or not? When times are really evil, when times are really brutal, when things look like they're falling apart, not just can we trust the promises of God, but can we trust God that he is working? Sometimes, it did, to Habakkuk, he couldn't see it. It didn't look like it. But God assures him, I'm doing something you don't know anything about. So what's God doing? Verse 6, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Okay, those are those southern Babylonian. Those are, the, those are the warriors from Babylon. So God is raising them up. And God says that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwelling not their own, they are dreaded and fearsome in their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. I've never seen an evening wolf, but apparently they're fierce. Their horsemen press loudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. God says, I am raising up an evil nation to deal with my kids. 
The Babylonian conquest was a divine act of God's providence, an extreme measure on behalf of God to deal with the incredible sin of his people and an attempt to turn their hearts back to him. We look at things like the, we look at things like, um, the exile and go, wow, how could God let that happen? But we look at the, the sin of Manasseh and we go, wow, how could God let that happen? And we go back generations and we look at the, the tension and, and the brokenness of the, even right after Solomon's reign as the nation splits in two and we go, hey God, how could you let that happen? And we are so good at looking around and going, God, how could you let this happen? And every answer is, if you will obey, there will be blessings but there's a curse here available too if you want it. And if you're going to go after greed and immorality, and if you're going to go after violence, and if you're going to shy away from forgiveness and faithfulness, well, then you can have that. Because God is sovereign, but God has set before us a choice. Habakkuk's also important. I wanted to end with Habakkuk because Habakkuk also gives us a beautiful picture of what righteous people do in times of great sin. I think one of the reasons we make mistakes is because we we haven't been really trained to fight with anything but fire. So we see fire and we we grab a flamethrower and we're like, I guess we'll do this. And so like we see, you know, social media is a mess. And so we hop on there and we like fire back or whatever it is, you know, and and somebody says something and instead of forgiving them, we're like, hey, I'm going to go get them. And like, it's just, you know, these are the only skills we have. Habakkuk gives us another option, but it's not an option that a lot of people like because it, 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 it is so strong. It feels passive. Because what it does is it really makes you say, oh, I'm going to trust God and stay right here. In chapter 2, it starts with Habakkuk saying, I will take my stand on my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he uh, said to me. And what I will answer concerning, and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 4 of chapter 2 says, the righteous shall live by faith. If God had asked Habakkuk to grab a sword and run out there, or go grab five smooth stones and head down there, or go down to the river and see who laps up water this way and who does it, like there are times in the Bible where God calls people to do stuff, but it is always stuff that makes them in the world's eyes the underdog. Habakkuk, after his complaint, after his lament, after God says, I'm doing something that you don't see, Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, okay, then I'll stay right here and I'll just look and see what God does. Do you see the strength that that takes, Christians? To say, God is working. I trust it. I know it. The righteous will live by faith. I'm not going to live by the headlines. I'm not going to live by the last thing I heard. I'm not going to live by the last phone conversation I had. If you still talk on the phone, what are you? 200 years old. Um, I'm not going to live by the last conversation. I'd rather I'm going to live by faith and I'm going to know that it is safer in God's will than it is outside it. So how do we live? How did we get here? It was idolatry. It was not protecting kids. It was violence. It was immorality. It was just self. Just acting like a bunch of humans. What do we do if we're the righteous? What do we do if we go, no, I, I don't want to live according to the culture. I, I want to live faithfully for the Lord. Well, Habakkuk would have a standing waiting on God in prayer and watching. Trusting that God is working. 
Habakkuk uses the word faithfulness. I'm going to be faithful to God. If nobody else is a person of prayer, I will be a person of prayer. Habakkuk doesn't join the idolatry of the culture, but also he doesn't sing vengeance on his terms. He doesn't, there's no assassination plot in Habakkuk's life. It's just trusting God. But faithful, righteous, living people also live in exile. And Habakkuk, I don't know if Habakkuk ended up in Babylon or not. I don't, I, I don't know if that's knowable, and if it is, I don't know it. But Habakkuk's generation, including Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, had to learn how to remain faithful in exile. Not as assassins, not fighting fire with fire, but living steadfastly, trusting that God is at work. Daniel is in exile for the great idolatry and the sin of his people, for greed and immorality and violence. How should he live? How should we live? With great confidence that God is working even when we don't see it. So I guess the first lesson to be learned in Daniel is that exile could have been avoided I know that there might be some that go, no, the story of the Bible could not have happened any other way. Well, it's all in the past, and so I guess you can have, I don't know. It's fine with me either way. But it sure seems like with repentance and humility, this whole thing would have been avoided. And there's times when you're in exile, but there's also times before exile. And right now is the time to begin waiting on the Lord. Right now is the time to begin living a life of forgiveness. Right now is the time to be living faithfully. Right now is the time that we should have humble hearts, hearts of repentance. Confession, faithfulness, peace, care for the vulnerable, steadfastness, genuine, sincere worship of God. This is the mark of the church. Is it our mark too? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this story. I'm looking forward to digging in and, and looking forward to, um, to being encouraged by what you are doing in our time by looking at what you were doing in Daniel's time. Lord, the story won't just be about what you were doing in Daniel's time, but it'll be about what you are doing for all time. God, would you teach us to trust you? Would you teach us to be not those with hearts like Manasseh or Jehoiakim or even those that lived in their time who, who went along with the culture, but rather, Lord, teach us to be people who sometimes with a broken heart, sometimes with a tear in our eye, are faithful, righteous, protectors of the vulnerable, steering far away from idolatry like greed and immorality self, And instead, that we would be people waiting patiently for you, steadfastly trusting you. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.